Well, good morning, faith family. It's great to see if you got your Bible, uh, make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. We've been in this book now for several weeks uh, in a series we've been calling The Search. And it's all about trying to find meaning in life, trying to make sense out of life when it doesn't make sense. And this morning is the last morning that we'll look at it until after Christmas. Uh, We'll take a break for the next couple of weeks. We don't want vanity to ruin Christmas. And uh, then we'll pick it back up in January and finish the book. But listen, the word that I've probably heard the most about this book has been the word relevant. I mean, I've just had multiple conversations out in, in the commons of people just saying, like, this stuff is everywhere. Like, it's in the news. It's everywhere I go. I'm seeing Ecclesiastes. I'm having conversations because now I'm being able to see it in God's Word. In fact, you are probably seeing it everywhere. Uh, last night I was driving home after our service, and a friend of mine sends me this picture via text message. Um, ev- <laughs> evidently, Coeleth has opened his own department store uh, for Christmas, and he's selling meaningless things, all right? Uh, I mean, it literally is everywhere. Now, if you're new this morning, uh, this book, uh, we're using the name Coeleth. In the English translation, it's the phrase, the preacher, because Coeleth is a Hebrew name that means one who gathers. So kind of like you're gathered here to, to hear a talk, uh, his name, Coeleth, means uh, the preacher or one who would gather people together. So that's why they translate that. And he's on a search for meaning, and it's a very, very honest, relevant look at life. Let's pick it up in chapter 4 this morning. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. I am convinced that these are the words of God. That he has breathed out. And beginning at verse 1, it says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he that has not yet been. And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after a wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. This is God's word. Please, please pray with me. And I want to ask you to pray for me as we look at God's Word together. Uh, Lord, we ask you now to come and speak. We're not here uh, to hear the words of a man. It has nothing to do with who is on this stage. It has everything to do with your Word. Holy Spirit, come. Take these words and, and minister to us. Speak to us. We are here to hear from you. And... Whether it convicts, whether it it creates tension in our life, we want you, Holy Spirit, to reveal where meaning is found. We want truth, not lie. Help us discern, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I, I think without question, it's one of the greatest trilogies ever written. Um, the book sells alone, it's sold about 150 million copies, and it accounts for a total revenue of about $9 billion. And that's just the books. Uh, then the famous film director, Peter Jackson, comes along, and he picks up the trilogy, and he makes a movie series off of it. That movie series has made over 10 billion dollars. So if you're doing math in your head, that's a combined total of almost 20 billion dollars that's been generated from this trilogy. In fact, the three movies are all in the top 30 movies of all time. Have you figured it out? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the classic trilogy from J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. How many of you got it right? Okay, several of you. Now, if you've watched the movies or if you've read the books, you know that the whole story uh, that that Tolkien unfolds is is about this mission. 
It's a long, very difficult journey to do one thing. Destroy the ring. That's what it's all about. Now, why is it so important to have this ring destroyed? Well, here's why. Take a look. It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. Now listen to what's going on there. The reason why the ring has to be destroyed is because with the ring comes great power. Did you hear the line? One ring to what? To rule them all. It came out of the desire to want to dominate. And so the idea throughout the whole movie is this. Listen, everybody wants the ring. Everybody desires it. It's the my precious, right? Wars are fought over it. Hearts are deceived by it. Relationships are challenged because of it. Because this is what everybody thinks. Here's the thought. If power were in the right hands then all would be right. If power were in the right hands, all would be right. Now listen, what Tolkien so, I think, brilliantly and beautifully shows throughout the story is this. Listen, power in the hands of humanity brings vanity. That, that, that power given to human beings can never ultimately make things right. In fact, what they do is make a bigger mess. Now here's what I'm here to tell you this morning. All eyes right here. 3,000 years before Tolkien. 3,000 years before Lord of the Rings. Coelith concludes the exact same thing. In fact, Ecclesiastes 4 is the Lord of the Rings before there ever was one. Except it doesn't come based on a fictional story like Tolkien's. It comes based on an honest observation of real life. Now let me put this in context quickly, okay? Where, where does this fall? Coelith in chapters 1 and 2 is on this personal pursuit to find meaning in life. And he tries all the same things that you and I try. Knowledge, fun, the party, success, uh, work, love, all these things. But here's his conclusion. The problem is, listen, temporary things cannot satisfy the eternal longings of the heart. So then he steps back in chapter 3 and he begins to make some observations about life under the sun. Life in a fallen world. And here's what he says. If you're honest about life in a fallen world, you'll conclude this. It's a series of appointments that you did not reserve and you cannot delete. After all, you didn't reserve your birth. You can't delete your death. There's a time for this and a time for that. A time for this and a time for that. And God has set it up this way. And by the way, while I'm observing life, here's another thing I see. Life under the sun is full of injustice. Sometimes the bad people get good things. Sometimes the good people get bad things. Sometimes the good get bad and the good get good. It's a total mess. It's a total mess. And that's why you've said a thousand times in life, if you've said it once, life is not fair. Well, he has another observation for you, and this is chapter 4. Life, if you're honest about it under the sun, is this. It's a constant struggle for power. If I could just have the power, life would make sense. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them 
on the side of their oppressors, here it is, there was power. And there was not one to comfort them. So Coeleth again is saying life is an endless struggle for power. And, and that's why people are using words in this series like relevant. Because hello, is that not true of the world in which you see? Everywhere you look, you see the fight, the striving, the battle for power. You see it in politics. Oh my goodness. Like, who controls Congress? And who's in power in Washington? We see it in relationships. Right? I've got to win the argument. I've got to have control over someone else in marital strife. What about in in work? Right? We have issues of authority, like who makes the decisions? Who's in control? And we even, unfortunately, I'll be honest, see it in church. I mean, can we just be honest while we're being honest? Even in church, there's power struggles. The deacons did that. The elders did this. The pastor did that. That group did this. This group did that. There's constant struggle in almost any area of life for power because more than you realize, we think, If power were in the hands of the right people, namely me, life would make sense. But Quella says, power in the hands of humanity is vanity. It rhymes. You ought to be able to remember it, all right? Power in the hands of humanity is vanity. And he ought to know. And the reason he ought to know is because he has a resume better than your resume. He's a man that knows power. He's a Solomon-like king. He's got tremendous wealth. He's got all kinds of people and possessions. He has power. And he says, I'm here to tell you that power can't provide meaning. And here's five reasons why. Five honest reasons why power is powerless to give you meaning in life. Number one is... Oppression. Oppression. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 4. You'll see it in the text. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. Here's his point. Um, No matter who's in power, somebody else always gets oppressed. And you say, well, who? Well, whoever disagrees with them. And the Hebrew word here for oppression, it's not just physical harm, though that's certainly been true historically. It's really more of a generic term in the Hebrew. In other words, it can mean a lot of different things. It could mean that the people are oppressed in the fact that they're belittled or they're ignored or they're taken advantage of. But his point is still the same. Make no mistake, the weak, those who are not in power, are always oppressed in some way by the strong those who are not in power. And listen, if you don't think that's true, like, wake up from, like, forever being asleep, okay? And go back to history class, because if history has proven anything, is that this is true. Now, those of you that know me, you know I love church history. Like, I love studying church history. One of my favorite examples of this actually took place in the 11th century. Uh, There's a pope by the name of Gregory, Gregory uh, VII. And uh, Gregory believes that only the Catholic Church has the power to appoint bishops. Well, there's another guy, and uh, his name is Henry, Henry IV, and he just so happens to be king. And, oh, Henry says, um, no, you don't have the power to do that. The state has the power to do that. And let me show you that the state has the power to do that. And he appoints his own bishop. And in the 11th century, church and state collide. And boy, do church and state collide. Because Henry is going to try to have Gregory killed. But Gregory hears of this before Henry does it, and he moves his chess piece first. And he announces what he calls an interdiction. You say, what's an interdiction? I'm glad you asked. An interdiction is this. Nobody can serve Henry communion. 
Now you say, what's the big deal about that? Well, in Catholic theology, particularly in those days, if you're cut off from the Eucharist, God's means of grace, if you're cut off from communion, listen, you're cut off from God. The message is very clear. Listen, Henry, you may have the ability to kill me, but I can send you to hell. I'm serious. And Henry is so terrified at the thought. The king, the king, in the winter of 1076 A.D., stands outside barefoot in the snow, begging the Pope to forgive him. The point... Whether it is husband to wife, parent to child, one race to another, government to people, gangs to a community, oppression has been a part of life under the sun. So power in the hands of humanity is ultimately vanity. Number two is not only oppression, but also adoration. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, that is, rags to riches. He's got an amazing story of being poor and becoming king. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Now notice what happens. There was no end of all the people all of whom he led. They loved him. They loved his story. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. In other words, all the popularity that you think you're going to get with power doesn't last. It doesn't last. They will love you one day and they will hate you the next. Because all people really want, Coelith is saying, is what have you done for me lately? I mean, seriously. You ask any pastor, you ask any president, you ask any parent, you ask any coach. Man, they will love you, the fan base will cheer, but you're only one interception away from the outhouse. You're only one bad decision away from your popularity polls going down. And so all the adoration you think you're going to get by being in power, you find out is fleeting and it doesn't last. Number three as to why power is powerless to give you meaning is, and I'm glad you're setting down for this, corruption. Right? Corruption. Look at chapter 5 and verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter for, and here's what he describes, the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. And so he's talking about injustice that's taking place and then the levels of leadership. He's simply describing a situation where bribes are taking place. In other words, sometimes power corrupts. I mean, have you ever heard that statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely, right? And this isn't just true in politics. Hello, I could stand up here all day and give you examples politically, but it's not just true in politics. It's also true in business, embezzlement, tax fraud, insider trading. And just so that we're balanced, you also see it in religious circles, right? Not all religious leaders are honest, right? There's corruption there. In fact, I've given you some examples in, in history. We're Protestants. Protestants are simply those that, that protested something. And the Protestant Reformation happened because, among many things, one of the things they were prote protesting was the sale of indulgences. When a coin in a copper bowl rings, another soul from purgatory springs. In, in other words, do you, would you like Aunt Betty out of purgatory? Would you? Would you like your daddy out of purgatory? Well, give to our building campaign. 
I'm not, that's historically accurate. I'm not making that up and I'm not picking on uh, Catholicism in those days. I'm just saying the Protestant Reformation broke out of this because Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg over issues like this because he said, if the Pope has the power to set people free from purgatory, I don't know, do it! Why don't you just do it? But why would I give up that leverage? I could talk to you about issues of simony where uh, political positions in religious circles were sold to the highest bidder. Even, just so you don't think I'm picking on Catholicism, even in non-Catholic areas. Think about, for instance, the modern day televangelists. And he starts handing me these big chunks of money, stacks of money. I start putting them in, first I put them in my briefcase, what I could. Then I begin to put them in my pocket. You remember Eddie Murphy's movie? And I begin to, I begin to put them in my pocket and I look like swollen, you know. And, I, and I'm sitting there thinking, all this money bulging, they're going to think I'm a drug dealer just as sure as the world. They're going to think I'm a drug dealer. And when I got all the money packed in and I was fixing to walk on the plane, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, I can get money to you anywhere you are. I can get money to you anywhere you are. Let me tell you, this $1,000 seed is breaking the shackles. It's breaking the shackles. It's breaking the chains. And to me, a $1,000 seed is proof that you have conquered greed. What? What? <laughs> What is the definition of irony? I'm just, I'm just curious. Now listen, I know some of you can get uncomfortable with examples like that, and I've I, I got to take just a quick moment and let you hear my heart. I'm not after anybody. I'm not after anybody personally. But just like at your work, you are whole, you're held accountable for your job description, I will one day stand before God and be held accountable to mine. And my job description is to shepherd the flock of God from false teaching. That, faith family, is false teaching. I'm not personally after anybody, but that is a false gospel filled with corruption. It is in political arenas, it's in business arenas, and yes, it's even in religious arenas. Power in the hands of humanity is vanity. Fourth reason is persecution. Chapter 10, verse 4, we're skipping around because that's the nature of wisdom literature, just like in Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. In other words, another reason why power uh, in the hands of humanity is vanity is because oftentimes people will use power to persecute others, very similar to that of oppression. So, for instance, if the king is in a bad mood, run and hide. If dad has had too much to drink, then run. If the boss is angry and he's a power-hungry boss, then you better freshen up the resume. Listen to Acts chapter 12 and verse 20. Let me give you a biblical example of this. It says, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace. Why do they want peace? Because their country depended on the king's country for food. In other words, listen, if you make Herod angry, you don't eat. Power in the hands of humanity is vanity. And here's the last reason. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. Keep reading next verse. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. And here's what he's saying. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. That is, there's folly in places of power. And in verse 7, I've seen slaves on horses, places of power, and princes walking on ground like slaves. Here's what he's saying pretty simply is this. Sometimes your leader is a num-num. <laughs> Don't say amen. 
All right, don't you dare say amen, right? I mean, have you ever said, he's saying, I've seen folly in high places. How many of you have ever said, they don't belong in that position? They're not qualified. They don't have the education. They don't have the wisdom. They don't belong in the position of leadership. And in the ancient Near East, this is even more maddening because often you become king not because you were the best in the interview process, but because your daddy was. You may be the biggest num-num on the planet, but you get to be king just because you were born in the right family. And so he says, how in the world are you going to look to that (laughs) to make sense out of life? Now let me ask you at this point, these five reasons that power is powerless to provide meaning, they make sense, don't they? I mean, because how many of us would resonate with one of them, if not all five of them? And Quelleth has become very, very skeptical. Now listen, listen, listen. I am not saying this is true of all leaders. I'm simply saying it's possible for all leaders because all leaders are not perfect. Every single leader, every person that has power, every person in authority is imperfect. And therefore, they cannot answer the quest for meaning. Now, again, Quelleth becomes very skeptical. In fact, I think he's a lot like uh, Ron Swanson in uh, Parks and Recreation. Take a look. What my reports do tomorrow? What's it on? Why government matters. Really? Let's get started. Life, liberty, and property. It's John Locke. This is your lunch. Now, you should be able to do whatever you want to with this, right? If you want to eat all of it, great. If you want to throw it away in the garbage, that's your prerogative. But here I come, the government. And I get to take 40% of your lunch. And that, Lauren, is how taxes work. That's not fair. You're learning. Uh Uh-oh. Capital gains tax. Are you Ron Swanson? I am. Okay, what exactly did you teach my daughter? Oh, you must be Mrs. Burkus. Lauren was supposed to do a paper on why government matters. This is what she wrote. It doesn't. (laughs) Well said. All right. Listen, listen. Uh, I've done that four times and I've laughed hard every time. Those are not the views of Berean Baptist Church, all right? I just want to be clear on that. Um, In fact, we would hold the opposite view. Uh, Romans 13 says government has been appointed by the Lord. So government is a good thing, but I am simply showing you that because that's exactly how Coelho feels. He feels when he looks at people with power as though it's ultimately vanity. Like, government's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It can't make sense out of life. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to apply this to you because it'd be very easy for us to say, well, I'm not in a position of leadership, I'm not president, I'm not CEO, this doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, it does. In fact, it applies to every single one of us. Listen to me. I am telling you it applies to you. Whether you believe it or not, I'm telling you it applies to you. And here's how I know. One of the things that you look to and I look to to make sense out of life is personal power. And here's why I know that it's true for all of us. Follow me for just a moment. A few weeks ago I told you that in the garden, Adam and Eve uh, looked to the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, because they wanted knowledge In fact, you'll know good and evil, and they were tempted by that. They also saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Now, here's my question. Everybody, come in here. Come in here. The question is, why did they want the knowledge, and why did it look so good? Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. This is the fall of humanity, which is why I know it applies to all of us. The temptation from the serpent is, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, why did they want the knowledge? Why did it look so good? Because they saw it as a pathway of being their own God. Why be vice president when you can be president? I mean, God, I like this whole structure thing that you've given us authority to have dominion over the creation, and that's good and all. The problem is that authority is still under your authority, and we don't want to be under your authority. We want to be you. And I have been, and you have been, eating that fruit ever since. If I could just have the authority to run my life, life would make sense. And let me show you why I know that's true for us, certainly for me. Number one is because you have lands, listen to my language, you have lands, territories, that are off limits to others and to God. If I walk in church today and he's preaching on money, I'm leaving. If I walk in church today and he's preaching on a certain lifestyle or a certain sin issue, I'm leaving. Why? Because that's my territory. And I don't even let God on that property. I don't let my spouse on that property. I don't, certainly don't let my children on that property. And I'm not about to let this preacher. Don't you see the sign in the yard? It says, Mine! Kings have territories. It may be the checkbook. It may be the calendar. It may be your free time. I don't know what it is, but I know this about me. There are areas I want to say to everybody else, get off. That's mine. Because that's my land. Number two is we have edicts or commands that other people have to follow, and if they don't, there'll be consequences. In other words, the right way of doing this is my way of doing this. And there are relational consequences because kings don't like traitors. Number three, and this, this is probably the most convicting of all, all right? And by the way, this is good to be convicted, and you'll understand why in just a moment. You don't like to ask for help. Or it's difficult for you to ask for help. And do you know where I see this the most in my life? It's what I pray for and what I don't. Follow me. Are you like me that sometimes you tend to pray the most in crisis? Why is that? Because in crisis, you're helpless. But the reason why you're not praying about anything else is because I got this. I'm king, and a dependent king is a contradiction in terms, all right? And so if a crisis happens, God will call out for you, but every other time, I'm good. That's why I've said, and I will say it again to you, pride is what you have when you are a king, prayer is what you do when you need a king, and you need a king every day, and you're not it, and neither am I. And that's why the Bible will say things like, you should pray without ceasing, because every moment of your life, you need King Jesus. But I bet if you looked at your prayer life, you'd find more often than not, you feel you can do this on your own. And then lastly, is the struggle when life is out of control. Like, hypothetically, if you've ever been driving on snow, <laughs> recently, right? And if you've slid and you, you, know, you get that feeling inside when the vehicle is out of control and you multiply that by a million when life is spinning out of control and you just feel like, I'm so powerless and I hate it. And it's not sometimes just the issue, it's the fact that you can't do anything about that issue. What's the point? We are saying the same thing Tom Petty says. It's good to be king. If just for a while, to be there in velvet, to give him a smile. Yeah, the world would swing. It would make sense if I were king. Can I help it if I still dream time to time? It's good to be king and have your own way. Listen, to get the feeling of peace at the end of the day. 
How do you get peace? When you're king at the end of the day and your bulldog barks and your canary sings, you're out there with winners. It's good to be king. Here's my point. Every eye, every ear right here. You and I look to power in our own hands more than we know. More than we know. It has nothing to do with about wanting to be president. It has everything to do with just wanting to run our own life. And let me give you one more application, quickly. And um, I, I want to say this, and I, I want to be able to address this quickly and know that I'm not picking a fight. I am genuinely trying to shepherd this sweet faith family in which I love in light of what I see in the culture. But another way this gets expressed is with political power. What I mean by this is not that you want to be president, but that people look to the kingdom of man to solve their problems. People look to the kingdom of man to solve their problems. I see so many, even Christians, consumed by, angry with, and defensive about politics. If a certain party were in place or a certain policy passed, then life would make sense. And they can't even fathom that somebody else could be a Christian and have a different political point of view. Now hear me out. Hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. And I'm going to deal with both sides of the aisle so you know that I'm not playing favorites. Do you know why? Every ear right here. Do you know why slogans like hope and change... And slogans like, make America great again, all right, both sides of the aisle. Do you know why slogans like that resonate with people? Because people want government to do for them what only Jesus can do for them. Which is to give them hope and a future. I'm telling, listen, I'm not against politics. You should be engaged in politics, be informed politically, be involved. But listen, you can't reduce the kingdom of God to the kingdom of man, nor can you expect the kingdom of man to do what only the kingdom of God can do for you. And I'm just, all I'm saying, I love you, faith family, is get your priorities right in terms of whose kingdom you belong to and whose kingdom you really desire. Because when I look at the world, I see it turned upside down. Where people don't care about the kingdom of God because they're so obsessed with the kingdom of man. And by the way, while you're typing me that email, I'll just go ahead and give you something else. All right? Um, <laughs> And this is just to Christians, okay, just to Christians. If you're more willing to tell somebody how to vote than you are to tell them about King Jesus, you need to ask to whose kingdom you belong. Did I make that clear? Be politically involved. I got no issues with that. But the real king of your life had better be Jesus and the real mission of your life had better be his kingdom. Because more than you realize it, myself included, we look to political power to make sense out of life. So newsflash from Coelith, power in the hands of humanity is vanity. So here's his advice, quickly, real quick on his advice, and then we're going to answer him and we'll be done. So Coelith would give you this advice if you don't have the power, if, if it's you know, your, your, your dad's the, the, the power-hungry person or your boss or, or the president or, or uh, any type of person in power that you're not in power, here's his advice. And some of it's pretty funny. Look at chapter 10, verse 20. I'm going to go really fast. Chapter 10, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. In other words, have you ever heard of the little birdie, right? The little birdie that's in the hallway, it's in the cubicle right next to you at work, is going to go tell the person in power, and you're going to be in bigger trouble. So the best advice I can give you, Coelith says, is zip it. Otherwise, you're going to make it worse. Here's the second advice. Chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. Here it is. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. That is, don't overreact. 
right? You try to fight back, you're only going to make it worse for yourself, is what Coeleth would say. Here's the third advice, chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed. That is, his advice is this. Don't expect things to change. Okay? That doesn't mean that your dad can't change. It doesn't mean that your boss can't change. It just means life under the sun will always be this way, so get used to it. And the higher you put your expectations, the greater the fall will be. And then here's the last one. By the way, don't ever tell me the Bible doesn't use sarcasm. You know, I talk about sarcasm being a spiritual gift, okay? Uh, I'm going to prove this to you because here's Coelho's best advice, and it's hilarious. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. And I thought the, uh, thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born. And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Here's his best advice for you. As much as it is within your power, don't be born. <laughs> if you really want to avoid the absurdity of power in the hands of humanity, your best shot is don't be alive. Like Don't even come into life because if you're born... What you're going to experience in life under the sun is that, hand, is that power in the hands of humanity is vanity. Now, Coelith walks into your precious little Christmas Eve party. And you thought you were just going to do white elephant and have some eggnog. And Coelith starts going, politics! Corruption! And he just starts ranting like we've seen here in Ecclesiastes 4 and other places, that, listen, power, power, power in the hands of humanity, it's vanity. What do you say? What do you say? Besides, you're right. But you know what? The gospel actually has more to say than you're right. The gospel actually has the answer. And do you know what that answer is? I need you to listen closely. I'm not just trying to tie this into the season. I'm being honest. The answer to Coelith's problem is Christmas. It's not what you think. Listen. What is happening at Christmas? Coelith is saying the kingdoms of the world cannot bring meaning. And he's right. Listen, so what if there was a kingdom that was not of this world? I just want you to experience this, right? You can jot these down if you want the references, but I just want you to follow along on the screen to how the New Testament starts. Just in the book of Matthew, and listen again with fresh ears, the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, the New Testament starts the way the Old Testament ends, namely, we want a king. Because the Old Testament is proclaiming, a king is coming. A king is coming. There's a kingdom coming. And everybody's waiting, waiting, waiting. When? When? And the New Testament starts with a genealogy of a king. And very quickly in chapter 2, you find verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, oh, there's Christmas. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we saw this star. We've been waiting for a king. The word on the street is, This king has been born. Where is he? In just one verse after, you see how the kingdoms of the world respond. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem's troubled because if Herod's angry, you don't eat. Herod's troubled because this isn't the collision of church and state. This is the collision of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. 
And he's terrified. So much so he wants this baby dead. Why? Because this is my territory. And I ain't even letting a baby from Bethlehem get in the way of my kingdom. In John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom, this king that you have been waiting for, he is here. And then in Matthew 4, the same serpent that took Adam and Eve in the garden and said, Why don't you be your own king? Why don't you be a worldly king? Takes Jesus out into the wilderness. And look at what he says in verse 8. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I'll make you king. I'll make you be your own God. You want to be a worldly king? I'll do it. Just bow down and worship me. But Jesus did what Adam did not. Jesus said, no thank you. I know who I am. And I know what I have come to do. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is the message of Christmas. The king is here and his kingdom has come with it. Listen, Coelho says the kingdoms of the world can't bring meaning and the response at your Christmas Eve party is, that's right, it can't. It never was intended to and history has proven that it will not. It never will. That's why you need a kingdom that's not of this world. And the gospel declares at Christmas there is a king that's not of this world, yet he came into this world, threatened the kingdoms of this world, refused to bow down to the God of this world, and invites us, praise God, to be citizens of a kingdom that's not of this world. And he declared it after the resurrection when he said, All authority... All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You hear me, faith family. Christmas, Christmas is more than about some little nativity set you have in your living room. The cross is more than just a necklace you wear around your neck for good luck. The empty tomb is more than a neat ending to a nice story. It is a declaration. That a new king has come. A new regime has entered in. And his name is Jesus Christ. And I don't care what any politician tells you. He's the only person who can give you hope and change. And he's the only person that can make your life great again. He has come to do what the kingdoms of man cannot And you say, I don't see it. It sounds good. Got the tingles on my arm, but but I, I'm just going to tell you when when I look at the world, I don't see it. That's because you're looking in the wrong places. If you keep reading in Matthew, you're going to hear things like chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you see the kingdom not in mighty power and strength, but in spiritual beggars who've had enough of living life on their own. That's the kingdom. You see it in prayers that sound like this in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see it when people say, I'm no longer going to live for me. I'm going to live for 
Him. And you say, Pastor, I want it. Man, do I want it. Because if I were honest, like Coelith, here's what I would say. The kingdom of man has disappointed me. Pastors, parents, politicians, they've never been able to fulfill all that I thought that they could. And that's because they never could be your Messiah. So Jesus tells this to you in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You're going to have to look away from the world because you won't see it there. And you're going to have to look into the brokenness and the humility of a life that says, I need someone outside of me. That's the kingdom. Today I am calling you, based on the authority of God's Word, every one of you, to believe that Jesus is King, to give up your kingdom, all your territories, all your property rights, all the signs that say mine, to put down your crown and take up a cross, and to really live for another kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, and to know that one day Christ will come again and it will be on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, do you know how the Lord of the Rings concludes? How it all comes around? It isn't just with the destruction of the ring, you know. It's with the return of the King. And I am here to tell you that one day that will happen not in some fictional story, but in real life. The King who came at Christmas will come again in glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And power will finally be in the hands of the right man. And all will be right. And we will forever enjoy Life under the sun. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Uh, very convicting, very challenging, because more often than I realize, I am looking to the kingdom of self, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the world to do what only the kingdom of God can do for me. And that's to make sense out of life. To give meaning in life. And I just pray for those in this place today, those that have never bowed the knee to Jesus, I pray right now that they would bow, that they would repent, they would turn from their sin, and they would say, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is King. And I receive Him into my life today. There are others in this place, Christians, that, that they know Theologically, Jesus is king, but they've been living like they are. And this morning just needs to be a time of repentance, of letting go of the reins and just saying, Jesus, Jesus, reign, reign, reign in my life. Holy Spirit, you know what our needs are, so come and speak to us now in the way that only you can, to the glory of Christ. Amen.